Good morning, everybody. Let's, um, let's get honest together for just a moment. When you heard those words, is that how you feel? When you think of the Bible, for instance, are those the kinds of words and emotions that come to mind? When you think of the scriptures, do you think, wow, they refresh my soul. They give joy to my heart. My guess is that for many of you, that is very, very well true. My my guess is, though, honestly, I think we have some problems with the Bible. If we want to just be confessional this morning, let's just be honest. I think there's some problems with the Bible. First of all, I think one of the problems is a lot of us really just don't read it much, in all honesty. You know, if we took a a survey of of everybody, I think, um, you know, I'd ask the question, how many read the Bible every single day? And I think there'd be several of you, of course, that would, and some that would just say, nope, not me. Or how many of you have ever read the Bible from cover to cover, all the way through in your life? You know, of course, many of you, yes, and, and many more, probably. No. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. You know, they produce some 100 million copies of it every single year. They sell 25 million of them all around the world. But one author called it the best-selling book never read. Ouch. And so I think a lot of us, one of the problems that we have is we just don't read it that much. You know, maybe you listen to a teaching on it in church or in a class somewhere. Or you listen to a podcast about it. Or maybe you have a devotional with like one verse of the scripture or two at the top of it. Or a daily email with a verse or two of it. But we just don't read it all that much. Maybe confessionally, maybe your Bible at home looks a little bit like this. And of course, there's no condemnation here. We're all in process together. But if we're just going to be honest, maybe that's one of the problems we have. We just don't read it that much. Another problem on top of that is we don't know how to read the Bible. I mean, let's be honest. This is complex. This is dense. This is hard to kind of wrap your mind around. This is not young adult fiction. This is not Harry Potter or Hunger Games. You know, this is this is difficult. This is 66 uh, different books, different genres, different tones written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek two to three millennia ago in, in the Middle East and Africa and Greece and all these different places. When you open the Bible, you step into this strange and alien world, and a lot of us just have trouble with that. And then there's an even deeper problem. I worry sometimes that if we're really honest, we don't even like the Bible. I mean, for one, it's it's a little strange, you know. On page three, there's a talking snake. Okay, that's weird. All right, and it can be it can be kind of boring too if we're really trying to be honest. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I wonder how many of you got up this morning and you got a cu- warm cup of coffee, maybe you got around the fire. It's really cold, and you sat down and you read the book of Leviticus. You know, you just. Man, I really want to read about those Israelites, sacrificial animals, and how they're... I mean, it can be a little boring. And my guess is that that if you and I talked, and I I just asked you very honestly, how do you feel about the Bible? I think, of course, many of you would say, well, I, I love it. I love the stories. I love the inspiration. I love what I learn. I love that. But I think a lot more of you would probably say, I don't, I don't just, I, I don't like it that much. You might say, well, I like Brooks that you like it. Like that you study it and you teach it and you go to seminary and you nerd out on it. You know, I like that. It's just not much for me. And then there's other problems. Again, somewhat even generational problems. A lot of us take issue with the Bible. 
There have been some generational values that have shifted through time and even the way we talk about things so that my grandmother, for instance, can read the story of Jericho where Joshua and the Israelites circled the city seven times and the walls came tumbling down and the Israelites took it. And she can read that story and she can say, yes, God is with me. I can have faith in him. I can put my trust in him. God is there. God is powerful. But a younger generation reads that same story and says, wait a minute, is this genocide? Is this ethnic cleansing in the name of God, killing women and children? Is this the God that we worship? This is the God of Jesus who commanded us to love our enemy. How do you, what do you do with that? Bible's full of beauty and poetry and grace, of course, but it's also full of some pretty gnarly stuff. You know, I've said before, if we made a movie out of the Bible, it'd be rated R. You know that, right? It's full of polygamy and rape and sexism and racism and war and revenge and all of these things. And and you get all of this kind of mixed up together. Abraham is the father of faith. He's a bold person in great courageous faith, leaving his homeland to follow after this God. He's also a polygamist, a misogynist. And you could even argue an absentee father. King David is a man after God's own heart, a passionate person of faith, following Yahweh with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's also a war criminal and an adulterer and a murderer. What do you do with all that? And then again, if we're going to be honest, what what about all the horrible things done in the name of the Bible? The African slave trade was justified in its early days in in America by the Bible. The genocide of Native Americans, parents who, you know, don't take their kids to the doctor or who don't allow vaccines because of a reading of James chapter 5 or people in the South who every Sunday morning, maybe even right now, are handling snakes in worship because of Mark 16, something in the Bible. Or polygamous Mormons in Utah who will take a second wife and a third wife, maybe even 15, 16 years old because, of course, it's in the Bible. Parents who abuse their children, beat them abusively, and they say, spare the rod, spoil the child. A lot of crazy stuff has been done in the name of the Bible says. So, with all those problems, but then you hear, the law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul. It says about these commands of God that they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. So which is it? Today we're going to begin what will be a longer sermon series for us the next couple of months on the Bible and the practice of it. I want to talk about the, the theology of the scriptures and what, what they are and answer some questions about them, even while we practically work through uh, what we're calling our spring habit together, where we're trying to read through the scriptures together as a community, as a church. Um, there's so many questions that we want to answer and look through in this topic, but uh, just to let you know from the very beginning, I'm going to be using all kinds of resources throughout. I hope I'll mention those to you. Uh, authors like uh, Tom Wright and Andrew Wilson, Eugene Peterson, Amy Jill Levine, a sermon series called uh, It Is Written from Bridgetown Church and other places, just a host of resources. But this morning, with, with all of the questions that we might have, I just want to begin with this simple question today. Why the Bible? Why read it? Why live it? Why think about it? Why should we read the New Testament together as a church? Why should we study it? Why? Why? 
And so let me take a moment to, to move away from some of the problems that we feel with it and to think about the perspectives of Jesus on these scriptures. Because the short answer to why we read the Bible, I think, is simply this. Because we are followers of Jesus and he seemed to be consumed with the scriptures. He read them. He quoted them. He taught them. He preached them. He lived them. He trusted them. In fact, it's even possible he might have memorized many, if not all, of the Old Testament books that we know of as as, uh, the Old Testament. So as we follow Jesus, as we become his apprentices, as we seek to live his life, hear his truth, live in the practices he he proclaimed, uh, live in community together with his people within the Spirit's presence, as we do all of those things, our end goal is to have the same kind of relationship with the Scriptures that Jesus had. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. (laughs) Neither am I. I love what Andrew Wilson says in his book, Unbreakable. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. He says, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. And I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. We follow the Bible, you see, because we follow Jesus. And not necessarily the other way around. So why don't we take a few moments this morning in Matthew chapter 5 just to see one snippet of how Jesus uh, talked about the scriptures. If you've got a Bible, let me invite you to open there. Matthew 5, which is on page 786 in those brown Bibles in front of you, gives us some sense of Jesus' glimpse of the scriptures of his day. Matthew 5 and verse 17, we jump right in the middle of uh, his Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think... I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And again, that's sort of a way of describing the Bible of his day, the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now hear that carefully with all of the crazy stories in the scriptures, all of the the, the hard edges. Jesus has not come to ditch the Bible of his day or to do away with it or to throw it away. He came to fulfill it. So one of the perspectives of Jesus is simply this. The Bible is a story that reaches its fulfillment in his life. Jesus did not come to throw out any of the puzzle pieces out of the box. He's going to use every single one. Now, by this point in this sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew 5, some of the people may have been wondering if he's going to throw the Old Testament scriptures away, given the blessing and identity statements he began his sermon with. He was looking out to a crowd of you know, mixed people, uh, a mishmash of people, you know, uh, maybe even some of the social riffraff of the day. And he said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To which some of the people must have thought, what is he talking about? Everybody knows God blesses the pure, not the poor in spirit. What's he talking about? Is he throwing the scriptures away? Is he throwing all this away? No, he doesn't. He talks about fulfilling these scriptures instead. Now, that doesn't mean that everything will continue as it had before by fulfilling the scriptures, the law, some aspects of this Old Testament that we read become obsolete. For example, the sacrifice for sins were radically transformed by his death and resurrection. Hebrews talks a lot about that in the New Testament. Jesus didn't come to throw away the pieces. He came to reassemble them appropriately. To fulfill them. And fulfillment is about bringing the story to its intended and appointed goal. Uh, think about a couple of images of this. When 
when a couple, for instance, say their wedding vows, they are fulfilling their engagement. You know, when one, uh, one of those folks asked the other, maybe, maybe the guy got down on his knee and with a ring asked the girl to marry him and they became fiancés at that point. That was part of their story, but that story was fulfilled when they made the vows to one another. Or think about this image. When a ship leaves the dock on its maiden voyage, it's fulfilling its design and its construction. So when you think about it in those terms, fulfillment doesn't mean uh, the end of the story because the couple remains together, you know, the ship remains at the sea, but it means the story continues in a different phase because the whole point of the first part of the story has been achieved. When this happens, it doesn't mean that you throw out the first part of the story. Far from it. Uh, The whole reason for building the ship was to take her out to sea. The engagement ring was always intended to sit next to a wedding ring. And it's very much true of the Bible. Moses in the Old Testament gave these commands about murder and oaths and adultery and divorce and retaliation and all these laws for this nation because he was dealing with a hard-hearted nation of former slaves who were trying to determine who they were in this new God and how to protect themselves and live life together. But he looked forward to a day when God would give his people a new heart and when the depth of these laws would take root in us so that there would be no anger, no lust even, no uh, broken marriages, no violence. That's what Jesus proclaims even in his sermon. You've heard it was said, don't murder. I'm saying, don't even be angry. Don't entertain anger. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, don't, don't commit adultery. But then I'm saying even deeper, look at your heart and the lusts therein. So when Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, the, the Bible of his day, he's saying the ship was always meant for the ocean. The engagement was always pointing towards a wedding. The Old Testament Bible is always leading to a new king for a new people with a new heart. And Paul put it this way, I think beautifully, Romans 10. Christ is the culmination of the law. So there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now this affects the way we look at the Bible. To Jesus, the Bible is not an encyclopedia of truth or a scientific textbook. He didn't treat it like, you know, this is where you find out the exact date of creation or who exactly the Antichrist is or necessarily when the world is going to end, the date for that time. He didn't treat it. He treated it like a story, this messy, long, drawn out story about God's work to bring the whole world back into shalom, into peace. And it finds its fulfillment in him, in his birth, in his life, his miracles, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the spirit. It finds its fulfillment in him. It's about him. Now I'll admit to you, I have this kind of um, strange preoccupation, I guess. As a, as a pastor, you know, I do a lot of uh, weddings, officiate weddings for folks. And uh, it is a strange phenomenon if you go into somebody's house that you've done a wedding for that you see a picture of yourself on their wall. Or you see your picture on a a social media page or in their wedding notebook or something, you know, because I'm officiating their wedding, the wedding photographer tries to get a picture of their first kiss or something, you know, and I'm just right here, you know, in the background of the picture, smiling or clapping or whatever. And it's a little weird to know that that's happening. But I realize this very clearly, that that picture is not about me. 
I mean, for me to think that that picture was all about me would have to be the height of arrogance or ignorance or maybe both of those things, right? Well, when we read the scriptures, Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the one the photographer is focusing in on. Now, we're there too, kind of in the background, but we're a part of that picture as well. and We can thank God for that. But the Bible isn't primarily about you, which means it's not primarily about your happiness, your healthiness, your wealth. It's about Jesus and his people and the way of God. So for Jesus, the story ultimately finds its fulfillment in him. That's one perspective. Let me talk about another one. Simply this, the Bible matters. Again, back to Matthew 5, now in verse 18, Jesus says in this sermon, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Wow, that is probably the highest view of the scriptures I have ever heard. Jesus is saying not even a scrap of ink will be done away with until it is accomplished. He talked about the smallest letter. Uh, Yoda in Greek, which is the Greek description of the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Yod, which is like an apostrophe. Not even that tiny little thing will pass away. It matters. So also the least stroke of a pen, the uh, the good King James Version translation of that little phrase was the tittle. You remember that word, the jot or the tittle? Now that is the difference between a capital P and a capital R. You see it? That little tiny line that makes the the difference between those two letters. He says even that little bit of ink matters in these scriptures unless you don't care about the difference between me giving you a pat on your shoulder and a rat on your shoulder. Jesus is saying every tiny piece of God's story matters. Does it matter to you? Or have we sort of set some of it aside? Maybe all of it aside. It was, uh, it was Thomas Jefferson who famously took out a pair of scissors and cut out of his Bible those things that he didn't like or didn't agree with, primarily the, the miracle stories of Jesus uh, didn't fit kind of the worldview of his, and then he would read that Bible. And we kind of scoff at that, I think, a little bit and think, well, that was weird, but at least, at least Thomas Jefferson was honest because we kind of do the same thing. We like to pick and choose and put aside things that we may not like. We love the mercy of God. We love God's care and God's love. But boy, when Jesus talks about sacrifice, about taking up your cross, when the Bible talks about marriage and divorce or sexuality or money, eh, I don't know about that so much. But for Jesus, the Bible matters. All of it. Uh, For Jesus as well, this is another perspective. The Bible is, in some sense, foundational. Verse 19 He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What we do with the Bible has serious ramifications. So if we, uh, the word he uses, if we set it aside, that is another way to say it, if we break his commands, if we say, hey, it's 2019, you know, get your laws off my body. If we ignore his commands, if we say, you know, hey, listen, I, I know what it says in the Bible, but, but whatever. If we relax his commands, if we say, well, uh, you know, 
I, I know I should do this, but boys will be boys, you know. Then there are consequences associated with that. You'll be least in the kingdom of heaven, he says. Andrew Wilson uses the term the unbreakability of Scripture. He talks about them being foundational. He says, many of us, when faced with a biblical difficulty, and there are lots of those. I mentioned some of those earlier. Stories and, and challenges and hard edges. He says, when we, when we run into those, we conclude that the Scriptures must be broken. Maybe this didn't really happen. Maybe God didn't say this. But maybe, he says, it's my interpretation. It's my assumptions. It's my worldview that I need challenging. Maybe there's something I don't know. Something I need to learn. Something I need to look harder for. Maybe I'm the one who is broken and not necessarily the Bible. One more perspective of Jesus here is that the Bible is sufficient. Look at verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty shocking statement. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, they took right living very seriously. And they had crafted this whole life around the scriptures and even broader than the scriptures. But Jesus likes to turn that right living on its head. He does this, I think, most famously in a a wonderful story found in Luke chapter 16, where again he's telling the story in the presence of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. It's the story of a rich man and a man named Lazarus, a poor man. You may remember that story. It sounds like a simple story of of role reversal. This this poor man named Lazarus uh, dies and goes to be with Abraham in a vision of the afterlife. And this rich man dies, but he ends up in torment. And it ends with this strange piece of dialogue between the rich man and Abraham kind of in the afterlife. And this is the story Jesus tells. Uh, The rich man pleads, I beg you, Father, that is Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied in the story, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. You hear Abraham says, no, they can, they can read the scriptures for themselves. But the, the rich man pleads, No, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Do you hear him? The Bible's not enough. But again, Abraham says no. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that is to, to the scriptures, if they don't listen... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Wow. Jesus, you know, drops the mic right at that moment. Jesus, who himself would rise from the dead following this story. Now, this is a story about kingdom righteousness and about wealth and poverty and the great reversals of Jesus' reign. But boy, the end of this story seems to point to a great sufficiency of Scripture. Roughly translated, Abraham seems to be saying, if people want to know how to enter God's kingdom, they can read the Scriptures and they'll repent. And if they don't, then not even a resurrection will persuade them. In some way, these Scriptures, they're sufficient for us. But in our day and age, we're so individualistic that that people say, maybe you've heard someone say this, maybe you've said it, maybe you're saying it today, where you say, you know, if God wants me to believe in Him, then He'll do a miracle for me right now. He'll do this, He'll provide this, He'll give me this wealth, He'll do this thing for me, and if God does a miracle like that for me in my presence right now, then I will believe in Him. Except Abraham in the story says, no, no you won't. 
Because weirdly, miracles done in front of other people or at other times don't seem to count. But Scripture, according to Jesus, is sufficient. It reveals who God is. It talks about who we are, what God is doing about that, how we should respond. We don't need extra miracles or revelation to reveal the gospel, the good news. We can read the Scriptures. And if we don't believe them, then no amount of sky riding or or parlor tricks are going to help. And I think we need to hear that again, even as a church. That honestly, we don't need visions to believe that heaven is real because Jesus has said so in his word. That we don't need miracles, uh, extra miracles to confirm that God loves us. We know it from Jesus and from his scriptures. We don't need great wealth or freedom from suffering or healing in this specific instance to tell us that God is for us. We know it from Jesus and from his scriptures. As Paul was later to write, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, assuming we pay attention to what it says, this Bible is sufficient for what we need it for. So here's my hope. My hope is that we will read the scriptures together. Over the next couple of months, we're going to offer an opportunity for uh, everybody as part of our church family to read through the New Testament together. And if this is your first time to do that, fantastic. I hope it's, it's thrilling. I hope it's an amazing experience. If it's your 500th time to do it, I hope you'll jump in all the same. We want our whole church family to be shaped by the scriptures, to, to wrestle with them again and anew and afresh. Uh, we don't want this just to be, you know, like the staff is doing it with like 20 of you. We'd love for you all to jump in and to do this together, to enter into this habit of reading the scriptures. So here's our ask. Uh, uh, Number one, I hope you'll read the scriptures. We've got some uh, Bibles out there, some New Testament kind of reading Bibles that strip away all of the extra things that have added to the scriptures, notes and cross-references and even verses and and chapter references. Just just reading through the scriptures is what we're hoping for. A reading plan in there, hopefully make that easy to read. Uh, We have on our website even uh, at southsidechristian.com slash listen some audio readings of the scriptures if that's a, a better situation for you or or you're more of an auditory learner you want to do that that's available to you we hope you'll read it and engage with it i uh, hope you'll you'll watch it we also have some videos available uh, simple videos to kind of give you some context as to what you're reading that's again on our website at southsidechristian.com slash watch uh, we hope you'll discuss it. You know, many of you are part of, of journey groups that may be uh, kicking off this week that are going to focus on this reading. I hope you'll bring your questions and your observations and your insights, even your problems, and talk through them together. And guess what? It's perfectly acceptable to say, I don't know what's happening here. But I hope you'll think about it and you'll discuss it and you'll converse with it together. And if you're not a part of a journey group, grab somebody for lunch once a week and sit down and go, hey, what is going on here? And I read this and what did you think about that? And then I also hope you'll explore it. I hope you'll come each week in the sermon series as we think about what the Bible is and what place it has in our faith and try to answer some of the questions that it poses for us. But let me offer, in the midst of all of this, just a few kind of practical tips for this for you. First of all, I hope you'll create kind of a ritual for this to happen. You know, put, turn the TV off, you know, put your phone away and, and read. We don't need a picture of this on Facebook, you know, hashtag Southside Bible reading, you know. You don't need to spend 20 minutes every day getting the Bible just perfectly so you can put it on Instagram or you can show your friends what you read. No, just take that 20 minutes and just read it. (laughs) 
Create a ritual for you. Maybe it's morning, maybe it's evening, maybe it's through the day. Whatever that works for you. Just create a ritual for it. Second, don't add this to an already over-busy life. You may have to subtract. Uh, This reading plan is uh, five days a week. Uh, over the course of about eight weeks, maybe a little longer, depending on how your groups do this. But you're going to need to subtract maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes a day to read through 9, 10, 11 pages, I think is what the reading plan has. Maybe that means for you, you you spend a little little less time with the newspaper. You need to cut out a little bit of, of television shows or a little bit of Netflix or a little bit of the gym or a little bit of ping pong or whatever your thing is. You know, cut a little bit out to create some space for this and then finally, I just offer this. Just, just stay with it. There are going to be days you're going to open up the Scriptures and it's going to be like God is coming alive before your very eyes and you're going to see things and, and it's going to be brilliant and wonderful and awesome. And then there are going to be other days where you're going to say, this is why I don't read this thing. This is so boring. I've heard this before. Just stay with it. Just stay with it. Because as you persevere, as you read, as you sense uh, God's voice coming in and through these things and His Spirit speaking, I think it'll even start making some sense, more sense over time. Now listen, I know, I know this is a big commitment. Uh, I know a lot of you aren't even readers necessarily, or this is certainly not the style of reading that you do on a regular basis. I get that. It's a huge commitment. But of course, following Jesus is a large commitment. And for him, this was an essential part of our discipleship. So let me just invite you to do this, to jump into this together. And I hope, I hope that we will discover or rediscover the simple truth that the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. That's my prayer. Father, I do hope that for each of us that we would rediscover um, the beauty of your word, that it would shake us and jar us and scare us and confuse us and inspire us and build in us the life and the habit of interacting in this strange world of the scriptures. And Father, I pray that in so doing, you would lead us to be a people more like your son, Jesus. I'm thankful for your word, Father. I'm thankful for... Uh, the the challenge and uh, the, the hope that it offers for us. May we as a church family embrace it and find great joy in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen.